during the kind of crisis of the fever, he saw these rabbis in the air, and he has and he always believed that they were there. I mean, he half believed it. You know, he was a rational person. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Richard Goldstein is one of America's first rock music journalists. A radically queer figure in American media for decades, Richard has spent a large portion of his life figuring out and articulating his response to being alive on the front covers of some of the world's most important publications. His column, Popeye, the first regular column on rock and roll to appear in an established cultural publication, was first published in The Village Voice, America's largest weekly newspaper, in June of 1966. He stayed at The Voice for decades, eventually becoming its executive editor. His coverage of the intersection of pop culture, politics, and sex has been published in Vogue, The Nation, The Saturday Evening Post, Mademoiselle, The New York Times, for which he famously gave the Beatles Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band a bad review, and his 1969 interview with The Doors for WNET is still considered canon. Here's an excerpt. People are, at our concerts, at least, uh... They're sort of, it seems like they don't really uh, come to hear us speak politics. What what do they come to hear? I, mean, I, you can I think they come more for the religious experience. How does that translate in terms of rhythm, riffs, and things like that? Uh, you really can't, because any rhythm, any riff, any, any, any set of lyrics is release. You know, it's just if you're releasing yourself totally into whatever you happen to be playing at the moment. How about in, in lyrics? What's um, the difference between a rock lyric and a poem? Well, well, there's really no difference. You know, Jim's book is uh, the same as Jim's lyrics. You know, this, uh, I can read a page and I've heard him sing pretty much the same things. During his time as executive editor at The Voice, Richard mentored many young writers, the last of which was me. We met two weeks after I moved to New York City in 2003, and I was his research assistant until the summer of 2004. On this episode, I talk with Richard about his own father, Jacob, and what it was like to grow up in the Bronx in the 50s and 60s. We discuss our own mentor-mentee relationship, how he approaches being a stepfather and grandfather to his husband Tony's children and their children, and what he really thinks of Joan Didion. He had a number of different names. Technically, his English name was Jacob, and he was known as Jack. But actually, his Yiddish name, which he was using as a child, was Yankel. And so all of his friends called him Yankel. Was he religiously Jewish? That's another complicated <laughs> matter. Yes, he was, but not in a, in a kind of denominational sense. He believed that there was a group of rabbis protecting him in life. And this is a belief that he had since he was a child living in an orphanage and came down with pneumonia. And during the crisis of the fever, he saw these rabbis in the air. And, and he always believed that they were there. 
I mean, he half believed it. He was a rational person. So I would call him a freelance Jewish mystic. He loved mystical Jewish scholars. You know, there were these people who roamed around, usually giving lessons in bar mitzvah. And we had one, you know, in the house. They, they were usually very disheveled and smelly, with hair all over, you know, and they would come in there. And that's how they earned their pittance. But basically, they were scholars. And the other thing is that he wouldn't go to any of the middle class synagogues such as they were. He preferred to go to a Jewish old age home so that he could help make a minion, which in those days for everyone was Jewish, was 10 males. So in order for them to have a minion, since most of the people in that home were women who survives, men usually, they survive men, he went there to say his kaddishes for his parents, which he did every day for a year, which is the actual requirement I can't even remember because it's on the Hebrew calendar when they actually died. And the Hebrew calendar changes every year. So I just put up the candle once a year, usually on, uh, you know, Rosh Hashanah or something. But anyway, my point is, uh, this is you know very individualistic form of Judaism. But you know what they say, two Jews, three opinions. It's actually two Jews, three practices. So how did that influence you? I'm an atheist, you know, and I like to say that I'm in Jewish in every way except for the religion, which is, can really happen, actually, because it's not just a religion. Um, I've never felt the spirit. And so I'm an atheist just in terms of my emotional response to the idea of God. But I'm very fond of religious people, and I respect them and even admire them. I just find it puzzling that they can believe the things they believe. I don't like bigots, but if they're not bigots, I think they're often very good people. And because of my father, I have an affection toward all religions, people who observe any religion, Hindus or Muslims, I feel positively toward them. What was home for you as a child? Well, I was born on the Lower East Side in the days before it was a, a, a night town for NYU. And I grew up in a housing project on the Lower East Side. It was the second public housing development in all of the United States. It was a walk-up, and I loved it as a kid. If you just went across the highway, the uh, FDR Drive, you were in a park with a big amphitheater where they held dances every summer night. And I used to dance with a broomstick, and that was my introduction to entertainment. And I lived there till I was about seven really loving the neighborhood with all of its extremes and, and crowds and everything like that. And then we did something that my father called moving to the country. Uh, and the country was the Bronx. So we moved to another project in the Bronx, but it was right next to Bronx Park, a giant park. And so my childhood was urban, but it had this big, big park where I used to do my uh, alienated wanderings day after day. So that's where I grew up. I grew up in an Ita mostly Italian neighborhood with a fair number of Jews, but the majority were Italians. And that was a great asset in my life because their attitude towards sex is so different than the Jewish attitude. It seemed to me growing up, and this is probably a stereotype, that whatever they liked was fine. And that's not a Jewish attitude right there. But anyway, in terms of my friends who were Italian, that was their attitude. Whatever you like is good. In terms of sexuality particularly, is that what you're talking about? Not just sexuality. I mean, sex per se, you know, we had in the projects closed stairwells closed with fire doors. So if you had to escape, you could go down one of these stairwells and they would be closed at every floor. So fire couldn't spread. 
There were blankets on the floors and kids would go there and, and have sex. I, I did this. I did this with girls. And it was just very easy. Jewish and Italian sex, both sides consider each other to be polluted. So it's very sexual. I think all of Long Island is populated by the spawn of these unions. The stairwell unions. Unions between Jews and Italians. The spawn of Satan. You know, <laughs> so a lot of my friends were Italian. What was time alone with your father like when you were a child? First of all, I'm very bonded with my father, uh, even today. And I am what you would call a, a father-oriented gay man, meaning that I'm a bit on the butch side, not by Tarzan standards, but more than a number of the gay men that I know, and even the gay men I'm attracted to. But that just is because I bonded with my father and am closely bonded with him. My father wasn't, you know, we didn't throw around the baseball. First of all, there was no yard, but we didn't go into sports and all of that. Um, but we were very close. And so it was a major influence in my life. We would go at the crack of dawn to the Radio City Music Hall because it was cheap. They would have like a 9 a.m. show with the Rockettes. And it would be really cheap. We would travel an hour on the subway to get there and then have lunch at the automat. He was a postman. So when an art magazine came to the post station, you know, the station house, he would tear off the address uh, where it was going. And then it would go to the dead letter office and he'd go there at the end of the day and bring it home to me. So he brought me all of these fancy European magazines that uh, other people did the same thing. You know, you just tear off the address and then you claim the magazine. So that's how I ended up reading all of these theater and art and music magazines, opera magazines and all of that, because he stole them from the post office. It's interesting. He wasn't trying to like make a man out of you. He was feeding you cultural nourishment. I mean, that's pretty amazing. These are his aspirations, maybe? Yeah, well, there was another uh, a brother of his who was a writer and a minor radio personality uh, and who changed his name to Gould in order to get by on the radio. And uh, my father loved this brother of his, and he died in an auto accident, causing my father to have a terrible spasm that lasted for weeks. So I think maybe he identified me with his brother. Right. There are lots of reasons why that kind of norm about being a man might not apply to everyone. Yeah. In any case, he did do this, and, and there was no feeling that it was unmanly or anything like that, or that I was a sissy or anything. It's just that he saw this as an interest of mine, and he just fed it constantly. He wasn't very ambitious. My mother was severely ambitious and constantly deprecating him for the fact that we weren't rich. As a matter of fact, she once was sitting in my apartment in Manhattan, and she started to cry, and we said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she looked at me and said, I thought you would have a swimming pool. And I said, Mom, a swimming pool in Manhattan? Think about it. That was her idea. You know, I should have a pool. Well, you know, maybe you should have. <laughs> My father was into me being maybe artistic. Uh, he didn't know a damn thing about culture, but he yeah. just foisted it on me. And I just yeah. ate it up. That's obviously a, a massive influence on your then progression into writing and writing about culture and writing about music. Absolutely. And because I was an alienated queer kid, in those days, quite bisexual. Um, actively bisexual, but it's quite alienated from my neighborhood. And I read obsessively. I read the entire canon of American literature and much of the European canon as well. All of my friends were in the books. 
To get to Greenwich Village from my neighborhood in the Bronx was an hour on the subway. And I would just bring a book. I would read 70, 80 pages all the way down there and back. And I just spent hours and hours reading literature. You did create a career for yourself as a writer and a cultural commentator by immersing yourself in rock and roll as a social phenomenon, which people really hadn't done before. Can you talk about how you managed to do that? Well, Tom Wolfe did something like that shortly before I did um, in his profiles of Phil Spector, car culture, things like that. He was interested in teenagers in terms of their obsession with status and style. He considered teenagers of the 60s to be a new regency period because they were obsessed with style. But he didn't understand anything about the aesthetic of rock, whereas I did because I was intimately familiar with it ever since my childhood and loved it and found it to be the essential expression of my sexuality. So when it came to making a statement about rock, yeah, I, I thought it was intensely social, but I also thought it was aesthetic. And I believe that speaking of aesthetics, it was an art form. And that was the radical statement. Actually, the thing that I did that no one did, except in small, tiny journals, was to assert that rock and roll and later rock were art forms, that Little Richard was a great artist, for instance. And, you know, this is a class position. When you look at who the early rock critics are, most of them were working class. Because who else actually thought rock and roll was really worth paying close attention to? I think it's sort of the difference between your writing about the 60s and in the 60s and, and somebody like Joan Didion, who is credited with really kind of covering a lot of the 60s culture, but she was super Upper East Side. I mean, she wasn't right. like living in that. She didn't know squat about what feminism was like, about what rock and roll was like. She was not on the ground. She was in the penthouse. You're right. Or she had a view of the Pacific. And you can't write about rock and roll with a view of the Pacific. You might be able to make it, you know, and get rich and, and have it, but you can't write about it. It's, it's just impossible. And I teach her essay on feminism because it's one of the most reactionary pieces of writing anyone has ever, ever published. Um, she says that women are about blood and childbirth. That's, you know, that's her. So my work was a polar opposite of hers. Your memoir, Another Little Piece of My Heart, my life of rock and revolution in the 60s is a fascinating portrait of life on the forefront of cultural upheaval. You write about your brief friendship with Janis Joplin, among others. You hung out in the Warhol factory a bit. You bought art from Keith Haring before he was famous. The Velvet Underground played at your first wedding. And in addition to the books that you've written about counterculture and politics, you were manipulated by the CIA into writing a book about drug use. Did your father have a clear idea of what you were up to? Did you talk to him about any of this? Was he proud of you? Yeah, he was proud. Yes, he was. Uh, no, I don't think I ever talked to him about the rock pieces very much. I once took him to CBGB's and he stood there uh, listening with his coat across his heart because he thought that he might get a heart attack from the volume, the sound level. Who was playing? Oh, I don't remember. You know, yeah. those things, you know, melt together. And it's after I stopped writing about rock and roll. But anyway, I did write a number of pieces uh, that weren't about rock and roll and that were published. And one of them was about three generations of my family 
and it was called Jews with Some Money, because there's a famous book called Jews Without Money about working class Jews. And he was very proud of that. And in that piece, you know, I guessed things about his mental processes as a child that turned out to be true, even though he had never told me about them, which is really extraordinary. So he read this piece? Sure. It was in New York magazine. So, I mean, for instance, you know, when his brother died, uh, the body would be stored in the living room on blocks of ice because no one could afford a funeral home. And you buried the person the next day anyway. That's a Jewish custom. So I described his feelings while trying to fall asleep in his bed, which was next to the blocks of ice and the dripping water with the body of his brother lying there. And he told me that is what it felt like. Wow. Yeah. I think that's remarkable. This is what Joyce calls the metempsychosis of souls, you know, the transference of, uh, of consciousness from one person to another with no words spoken, as is the case between Leibhold Bloom and Stefan Daedalus. I could see how that would resonate amongst you as a Jewish person and your father as a Jewish person. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know whether, I, I would think it's possible outside of those parameters, but maybe, maybe there's something culturally acute that makes that easier to achieve between Jews. I don't know. It's a very patriarchal faith and fathers are very important in it. Uh, when my father died, some rabbis down in Florida wanted to make sure that his body was washed. I didn't even know about this custom. And I said, no, what, what is that? You know, and he said, my mother would die and she wasn't washed. And the rabbi said, maybe not the mother, but the father. So I said, okay, I'll call you back. And I never did. <laughs> We didn't wash him, for God's sakes. But anyway, there are all these elaborate customs. But the point is, it's a paternalistic faith. There's feminism within it, and there are many factions within it, of course. But essentially, it's a patriarchal faith. Uh, yeah. That is Islam. I, I guess also, you know, there is a con there is a real consciousness about inherited trauma in Jewish culture, no matter what kind of a subgroup of Jewish people you are. I'm thinking of the Hasidic community, the Orthodox community, rather, in, in South Williamsburg, which really has grown out of the trauma of the Holocaust just resonating out. The Hasidic experience is more than just the Holocaust. Right, yeah. Hundreds of years. And uh, yeah, that's right. It's a traumatized uh, culture. I always say that I don't have a lot of fondness for the state of Israel, but I think it's something that uh, was made necessary by the history of Europe. And the feeling that if we didn't have an army to protect us, we would be dead. Hey, it's Elizabeth Thompson. We thought this was the perfect spot in the episode to take you aside to say, if you like what you're listening to, please consider becoming a Tell Me About Your Father patron. Head to patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather, where for as little as $3 a month, you can get bonus content like our Patreon-only series, Bad Dads on which we tell you why certain celebrity fathers are dreadful people. And that's in addition to the soul-calming knowledge that you're helping us cover the cost of producing episodes like this one. Patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. Okay, let's get back to Matt and Richard Goldstein. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with you was to talk a bit about queer mentorship that is within queer communities, older generations provide a kind of paternal or maternal guidance of younger generations, mostly because of their own families' inability to provide this kind of support for one reason or another. And 
gay men of your generation carry a distinct trauma because of AIDS and the way that it was ignored by an indifferent Reagan White House. You've written extensively about this over the years, particularly about how that experience coloured the way that you then processed the anthrax scares after 9-11, for example. I bring this up because half of the gay men in your generation in New York died of AIDS in the 80s, which is emblematic of the impact of AIDS all over the world. And I have no comparable experience to that. But that trauma does resonate into my generation in many ways, notably through the distinct absence of our queer mentors. I think of the time that we worked together as one of the most important developmental periods of my life. It's something that many people I know have never had. I think what I'm saying here is that you're a paternal figure for me. I just never had that kind of proximity to a gay mentorship. Well, that's wonderful to hear. I am a very paternal person. And that's because I'm close to my father. Yeah. If you're going to be a paternal gay person and you try to do this with straight men, there's limits because their phobias kick in and it limits your ability to really mentor them. Well, that's the thing, because I was the last intern that you had at The Voice, but you had, there was quite a number of them. They weren't all gay. Not all of no. your people that were interning with you were no, but gay. Yeah, I had I had a gay intern who would scream at me to stop yelling at him. Oh, that's the part I found so calming. <laughs> yeah, he was from L.A., and he wasn't used to being yelled at, so I had to control myself. Um, no, but see, but that's the point. It, it's easier to mentor gay men, because they don't have the same phobia structure of taking that mentoring from another man. Whereas with straight men, sooner or later, they will back away. Well, you know, what was interesting as well is that our working relationship wasn't sexually transactional. I remember when I was in Australia working in arts administration, you meet a lot of these established like art types who you know it's like oh come and have dinner at my place and and you know blah 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 but you always know that what they're kind of trying to do is do like this trade-off like a sexual trade-off it makes me feel terrible right i mean i don't think i felt the way that a woman would have felt i i felt like i had more control than a woman might have felt in that situation yeah you did and also you probably didn't don't think of your body as being you know supremely penetrable to the point where it's sort of sacred. Um, right. Which yeah. I, I don't either. I don't think of my body as sacred. So if there's a sexual act that I don't much like, it doesn't really traumatize me in the same way. I, I certainly think I use sexuality um, to kind of maneuver, but I, it was never my main currency. I don't think I ever had that kind of currency anyway as like a 21-year-old. Some people do. You know, they really do. It's This is their thing go-go dancers and I think porn stars to a certain extent. You know, like these people who, are, who go out, they realize the world reacts to their body in a certain way and then they monetize that. Yep, yep, yep. Well, but I, I, didn't I have think that. it ruins the mental relationship. Yeah, but that was the thing. And it wasn't a thing that had to be established. It just was very, I think, very nurturing in a way, but that was not a thing. Did you have any queer mentors? Uh, it's funny. Uh, uh I had four friends who took me to my first gay parade, gay pride parade in the maybe the mid 70s. And uh, they were all people I deeply admired because they were much less neurotic about their sexuality than I was. One of them was Vito Russo. This is Matthew Philp. I just wanted to interject here to give a little background on Vito Russo. 
So Vito Russo was an American author, historian, and activist who died in 1990. He wrote The Celluloid Closet, a look at homosexuality in the movies, which the New York Times called Essential, and which was made into a documentary that was narrated by the actress Lily Tomlin. Vito was one of the founders of GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and he was the subject of the 2011 HBO documentary entitled Vito. Okay, back to Richard. They all died of AIDS. Like Ishmael and Moby Dick, only I survived. And the reason I survived was my neurosis. So I had to deal with the irony that my neurosis saved me. Because right away I demanded that people use rubbers yeah. I had used them as a kid in the Bronx with girls. And uh, I, I lost a lot of partners by doing that, but I may have saved myself. Sure. So as far as mentors go, I don't know. I, I can't think of any. You know, it's funny. I think of gay life as being very individualistic. Yeah. Even though it's fiercely bonded, gay people are even more individualistic than other groups. So I think that's why it's very hard to organize a politics that remains static in the gay community. The common bonding element is who you have sex with. So it's, it's like you could be anybody of any station in, or any career or any ethnicity. And, and Yeah, I, be, I always think yeah. it's, it's composed of people who would never be at the same party together. How did your parents react to your first marriage and then to your marriage to your husband, Tony? They didn't get along with my wife very well. She was a higher class than they, and her parents were a little snotty to them. Um, and, you know, I don't know what other issues there might have been. But uh, with Tony, they they loved him. And, uh, you know, he's a very special person. He did very well in a Jewish family. Yeah. And um, even though he towered above us. And uh, when I told my parents uh, about him, then I also came out to them. Uh, my mother cried briefly. And my father said, took me aside and he said, you know, Richard, he said, I have three problems with, with this. One is um, you can't have children. Two is people will, uh, will, will, will stigmatize you. He didn't use that word, but that's what he meant. The third, very interesting, he said, men are more jealous than women. So he warned me <laughs> that there would, be more, I mean, there would be more jealousy <laughs> than if I were straight. And those were his objections. So I, I thought about this and I thought to myself, wow, my parents are not Puritans. Yeah. You know? That was a shock to you. Yes, I wasn't, I had no idea how they would react. And it was very momentous as it always is. Right. Coming out to your parents. But then I realized, you know, so they can accept this. And as I say, they love Tony and Tony loved them. And, you know, that, that's how it worked for us. Yeah. Tony has children who have children as well, right? He's a great grandfather. So yeah. that's more, therefore, a great grandfather as well, right? I'm the primo. You know what? You know that's a Spanish word. It means okay. cousin. Right. Oh, it's a good word for. It's a word that describes my role in the family. So what do you do? How does that play out? Oh, I love them, and they're, they've been very generous to me. And and uh, it's a Latino, very hip Latino family, large, comes in all colors. You know, I've known the, the grandchildren since they were little and uh, and uh, spent a, a lot of time with them. And I don't know what else to say, except I've learned a lot about how wonderful Puerto Rican food is. Right. They're just hip New Yorkers. There's a lesbian in the generation above the grandchildren. There's a lesbian 
sister. Um, so, you know, they're used to having gay people in the family. And then there's a grandchild who went through a lesbian phase and now is married with a baby. It's a, it's a pretty flexible institution, their family. It's a matriarchal family with a tremendous uh, uh, tenacity, uh, ability to survive and, and to uh, rise in life. My stepbrother and my stepsister both have children and my, my two biological brothers um, uh, and their wives have had children. So there's a bunch of these kids and my immediate kind of primal reaction to these kids is, ooh, I've got to tell them all the things they need to know about like music and like, you know, do you have that? Well, I guess they're hip New Yorkers. Maybe they, they already know. You no, know, they, I would never know about Bad Bunny if it were not for them. You know, we went through the phase of taking them to museums and all of that. And I don't think they really got much out of that. So uh, mostly what I think we gave them was access to nature and inviting them to our, uh, be in Vermont at our house and to, you know, play with all the dogs in the area and swim and learn to use a kayak and collect bugs and all of that. I think that that had a lot of meaning to them and they love it up there. So we're in the third or fourth generation of little kids coming to Vermont and playing with icicles. That's cool. Yeah. But, in, you know, their intellectual life, you know, that's their, they have a, a rich enough culture without me. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. And our technical producer is Chris Gellis. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Go to patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And email us your dad stories at info at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. This podcast was inspired by my memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our moms, Betsy Lerner, Ann Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum.